0: Welcome to the Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. The morning after Joe Biden's big speech, I, to be quite honest, I'm, I'm way more interested in Rudy Rudy Giuliani's bad day, but um, we should start with we should start with Joe Biden's speech. This was uh the 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 new president's first chance to address a joint session of Congress. And uh, there was a lot going on there. There's no question about it. I mean, Politico's John Harris says Biden just gave the most ideologically ambitious speech of any Democratic president in generations. And uh, that's true. I think it's safe to say the era of big government is back. Uh, It's going to be an interesting challenge. He has uh, teed up an epic debate. Here's another piece from Politico. President Joe Biden wants to soak the rich to give to the middle class and poor, and he ain't afraid to say so. In his first address before a joint session of Congress, the president embraced a tax and spend mantra to frame his next big legislative fight, walking right up to a third rail that has terrified Democrats for decades and forced his predecessors to triangulate and retreat to safer middle ground. But he also had these moments where he hit a Just an optimistic note of unity. Let's play one clip where he talks about uh, the, you know, America surviving one of its gravest challenges.
1: We've stared into the abyss of insurrection and autocracy, pandemic and pain, and we, the people, did not flinch. The very moment our adversaries were certain we'd pull apart and fail, we came together, we united. With light and hope, we summoned a new strength, new resolve to position us to win the competition of the 21st century, on our way to a union more perfect, more prosperous, and more just as one people, one nation, and one America. Folks, as i told every world leader I've ever met with over the years, It's never, ever, ever been a good bet to bet against America, and it still isn't. We're the United States of America.
0: There is not a single thing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity. We can do whatever we set our minds to if we do it together. So let's begin to get together. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your patience. Uh, joining me today for the the morning after the 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 autopsy slash um, analysis, uh, our own uh, Bill Crystal, who uh, has a piece in the, up in the bulwark today, saying that apparently the reports of liberalism's death may have been somewhat exaggerated. Good morning, Bill. How are you? I'm fine. I love that. Thank you for your.
1: Patience, that's a good – a new close to presidential addresses, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank you for sitting here for 65 minutes. Okay, so I, I i confessed to you right before we started this that I have some – I'm suffering from severe cognitive dissonance, that I, I still really like Joe Biden. I really appreciate his decency. I am immensely grateful that he is the president, that we are no longer having to look at the former guy. But I have to say that I'm just listening to – and maybe it's a heart and head type thing – But listening to this fever dream of progressivism, by my rough calculations in the last hundred days, he has proposed spending an additional six trillion dollars. And that's on top of a whole bunch of trillions of dollars that we spent last year. And it. It, it you know this is the most ambitiously left wing presidency that we've had in in generations. This is more FDR than it is Barack Obama. So how do we sort all this? How do we sort all of this out? I I mean, is there any difference? But well, let me ask you this. I mean, is, is what you heard last night? If Elizabeth Warren had been elected president, would we have heard anything different? Would it have been any different? Had she not, uh, you know, if, if she was up there as opposed to the guy that ran as the centrist and the uniter.
1: Yeah, I think it would be different. So I'm a little friendlier to, to, to Biden, considerably friendlier actually to Biden's speech and maybe to his program uh, with a caveat that I think a fair amount of the program won't be enacted and some of it shouldn't be enacted, not a fair amount, but some of it won't be. Maybe the last trillion or two, you know, it's only a four trillion, Charlie, not six, wow. you know, so it's uh, that, that should cheer us up. Um, six. So, I think here's where it's complicated. I think there's a little bit, it's too simple in a way to say, you know, it's more ambitious, or or certainly I don't think it's quite right to say more left wing. I would say this is big government liberalism. The bad news for people like you and me who've read Read And I think believe, continue to believe a lot of the criticisms of big government policies, the kind of classic neoconservative and conservative criticisms um, are, you know, we're not thrilled about some of the big government stuff. It's going to be wasteful at best and somewhat damaging in in terms of unintended consequences and the like uh, at worst. The good news for me, and I'll I'll emphasize this part more, uh, uh, is that it's liberalism. I don't think it's progressivism. It was not a woke speech. It was not Elizabeth Warren-like. There were no denunciations of Wall Street, not really of rich people. There was kind of the normal FDR. You're right, the fdr hubert humphrey like hey the middle class is what really made america great the rich should pay a, a, a bigger share they can afford to but i think he even even added he had lived i think i didn't see it in the prepared text that lied about there's nothing wrong with people on wall street or i don't have anything against them i can't remember how he put it exactly but you know that they, they've been getting a disproportionate share of of the returns. Now, whether that's economically correct, whether the economic consequences of increasing taxes on capital and on investment, I mean, those are all obviously things that should be debated. If we had a normal Republican Party or more of a normal conservative movement, we would be debating those things more aggressively, and we will be. I think e- even so, a lot of us, a lot of good economists are going to weigh in and say, well, this is unwise and this would be counterproductive. But I felt good that it is FDR, Hubert Humphrey, liberalism, much more than woke progressivism. In that respect, he's both more ambitious than Obama, in a sense, but he doesn't have all that uh, conceit and pretense that history with a capital H is on his side, and you know he's transforming America. In that respect, it was, it was very old-fashioned, traditional uh, liberalism. He likes America. I mean, that last clip is kind of revealing, right? A progressive would not say that. Never, you know, you've always right. been wrong to bet against America. He's very much for kind of American traditions. He sees them. Uh, he mentioned, for example, systemic racism, a phrase I, I'm not crazy about, twice, I think, in the speech, but very much quickly uh, and didn't emphasize that as being the core of everything he was doing. So I I, and, and you know, a lot of the practical things he's doing, like the police reform agenda, I think is going to end up being pretty sensible. So um, I, I felt good. I mean, big government liberalism has its deficiencies. It has its drawbacks. It has its problems. But I think it's healthier than woke progressivism. And I think Biden is 80% Eighty percent on the big government liberalism side of things, and with a few occasional okay. you know, hat tips to 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 a more awoker and more progressive point of view than you and I would like.
0: Okay, so I, I, I think you 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 have talked about this, but but I want to stick with this distinction that you're making here between liberalism and progressivism, because there is a different feel to FDR, Hubert Humphrey liberalism. Than to, you know, the postmodern uh, pro- pro- progressivism. So could you just like just dive into that a little bit more? Can we just unpack that? W- what you're actually seeing and, and the distinction you're making there?
1: yeah I mean so it's a it's 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 these are big terms that encompass a lot of things, and the distinction isn't by any means uh, altogether clear or airtight There's a lot of sliding over from one to the other basically, big government liberalism isn't embarrassed about American history though we have to improve and that's what it means to be a liberal and obviously huge belief in the civil rights revolution which you and i share i think and and in other forms of you know uh uh, uh improving the society we inherited. But I think it's pretty different from the sort of new left, to use a term from our youth, but now progressive critique of America. Biden's speech did not sound like the 1619 Project. It didn't sound like... Quite what we would have said maybe about uh American history that we didn't talk much about history since he's a liberal it's very present oriented and uh, you know near future near term oriented, but it was not sixteen sixteen nineteen project sounding there was not a lot of beating about what America's done wrong there was not a lot of criticism of previous uh errors in American foreign policy for example over the last uh twenty years you know Iraq as he would see it I suppose now or Vietnam or anything like that it was it was in that respect very different. Think of Obama's early speeches, that Cairo speech and all that. But Biden isn't there in terms of foreign policy, in terms of a lot of domestic policy. There are areas where his party is is woker and more progressive, and he slides into that, and his administration will slide into that to some degree. And and I would have been nice to have, for example, a few sentences that were just a flat-out defense of free speech against the illiberalism of the left. He didn't go there, so you know, that would have been nice. Um, but, you know, to be fair, he didn't go in the other direction at all either. Um, I, was, I was pretty struck. I don't think he ever used the word progressive, actually. So uh, no denunciation of capitalism or anything like that. So um, I don't know. I, I, I think that's, okay. that's sort of – I mean, those are, there are many, many aspects to this distinction, obviously. I think it's a little bit of one – one knows it when one sees it, and and, and one thinks of the, the rhetoric. It was striking. He did you know, it was interesting. Just on the more narrow, narrow front, this I'd be curious to know what you think of this. Um, I, let me. I put it this way: I'm struck that the Obama people are not very graceful, or gracious. In when they discuss biden it's, there's an awful lot of right. sort of maybe there's genuine disagreements that's fine but there's also kind of resentment a little bit of passive aggressive kind of you know refusal to really uh, praise him much i'd say if you look at some of their people on twitter or watch them on on tv mm-hmm. um it reminds me a little bit of the reagan bush transition uh, i suppose it's hard but you know essentially uh, biden did not mention uh former president obama he didn't mention no former presidents i think except for fdr once so it it, that is kind of also characteristic of a certain kind of liberalism which has its limits it's kind of ahistorical it's kind of here are the problems here's what we can do we can help families we can you know fix income inequality a little bit um we can deal with climate change it's not as deep maybe or as thoughtful or as reflective as one might like but it's also in a way more grounded and sort of commonsensical than than a kind of fancy highfalutin progressivism.
0: Well, and 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 that th- th- this is an interesting point, and I don't know what the internal dynamic here is, but uh, you know, your point that he mentioned FDR and not Obama, uh, I'm, I'm I'm guessing that this uh, a lot of this analysis that you know he's he's becoming a trans a transformational uh, president uh, more FDR than Obama has got to rankle the Obama folks right. who thought they they were legend. Um, and then now for a lot of a lot of people in the Democratic Party, they're seeing Biden go where Obama did not want to go. OK, so Susan Glasser has a great piece in The New Yorker about this, this uh, about the speech and how d- Joe Biden has gone from, you know, describing himself as a transitional figure into you know what we saw last night. And she says, but transformation requires the passage of legislation, not not just words. Washington is still Washington, as Biden knows better than anyone, and if you don't have the votes, you don't have the votes. Key Democrats, as well as Republicans, are skeptical of his costlier plans, and so far, no GOP votes have materialized for any of his major initiatives. At 100 days, the politics are less transformed than Biden's rhetoric might suggest. In addition to the stu- stubborn facts of a tied Senate and a House where Democratic majority hangs on a handful of votes, the public remains as polarized and partisan toward this president as it, as it did toward the last one. So here you have somebody with a very, very, very narrow um, lead, certainly nothing like a, a, a mandate. And yet he's acting as if he, he has this massive mandate. And I wonder if there's a little bit of dissonance there as well. Where she's saying that even, even Democrats are a little bit, oh, they're kind of like going, okay, there's a reason why Democrats have stayed away from this kind of you know, tax and spend stuff in the past. And, and now he's pushing this with the narrowest possible margins in Washington.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's important. So there are a couple of consequences one can draw from that. I mean, he sounds a little like FDR and LBJ to take, but he doesn't have FDR and LBJ's super majorities in Congress or the, uh, you know, uh, majorities even in in being elected with huge majorities in 32 or 64, right? So so I think that's a very key point. I think Biden and his people are aware that it's a 50-50 Senate and that he won by four or five points, not by 15 or 20. And, um... I think he, they may feel that, look, I mean, the, the big the big agenda, again, I would qualify by saying so big, traditional but big agenda, uh, you don't pay much of a price, he may think, for proposing a lot of these things. And I think they know they're not going to get it all. And so, I mean, I guess the question is how – what you call dissonance, which I think is a fair term, dissonance in music gets resolved, right? And so I sometimes, if it's a classical, you know, composer, so, you know, it's going to get resolved somehow, and it's going to get resolved less by Republicans. So there are some issues they do need Republican support on, uh, than by also Joe Manchin and people like that. And so I think a lot of the stuff, you look at the proposals, and you say, whoa, but a lot of it's going to end up not quite as big and not quite as bold the tax hikes aren't going to be as high on you know uh, on investment and so forth as as it as they now look i mean and the question for though but but having said all that i think it is important i think they understand this he didn't he said it a little bit in the speech it really would be good to have a bipartisan compromise on a couple of issues partly because it'd be good to get them get good, leg- good good legislation passed and partly because it would be important for the country i think just for the nation i think biden very much has that instinct. He said it again last night. The two most logical, I don't know, the economic stuff of be that the Republicans aren't going to go with all the spending they're not going to go with the tax increases and that stuff's going to be done on pretty party-line votes and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Police reform, immigration, possible yeah. maybe voting rights, which we've discussed before about where there could be a compromise on that. That would be, I think, the kind of thing where Biden, uh, where you could imagine a genuine bipartisan legislation, which won't be transformative but would be important for the country and i i think police looks like it's first in line partly of course because of recent events and it will be interesting to see whether they do end up with a tim scott and is negotiating i guess with um is it, is it uh, Karen Bass? I think maybe has a lead in the house. I'm not sure exactly who's and, and involved. In and too, yeah. And obviously the administration's involved. So, um, I mean, I'm some. I do think it would be important for the Biden administration not to get too carried away with the transformational stuff. I mean, they let people say that about them. They don't quite say it that way. Right. And Biden, and, I don't you believe ever uses that term because he sort of wants America. He doesn't dislike the way America's been. He just thinks a lot of things need to be done. And you and I. I would disagree with him about some of those things, and he thinks the last forty years has been more, you know, of a problem than probably we do in terms of some of the, uh, you know, economic policies and stuff. But um, I don't know, so I'm hopeful that we end up somewhere. Uh, the transformational sort of rhetoric about him—I hope it doesn't go to their head, and I hope they end up—they'll do more big government stuff than we would like. But I hope they don't, you know, I hope they go do try to get serious compromises on some issues. If you're on the left, you look at that speech you know there was a lot of stuff he didn't say or he said kind of perfunctorily that i think you'd say well, hey wait wait a second wasn't this supposed to be part of our woke our woke progressive mm-hmm. agenda i mean one last point uh yeah. it, it, there was that funny thing which i got slightly involved in on twitter yeah. last night with uh uh jody ernst senator ernst you know had that uh stood up on the center floor with that chart of seven things that <laughs> that <laughs> Biden yeah, was, the, the liberal fantasy wish list and then it got you know, photoshopped and then I was making fun you know, we we're all joking around about the uh you know the sex blend. but all but if you look at the actual chart, she had seven things that were, you know, this is the liberal fantasy wish, DC statehood, uh ending the filibuster, uh raising taxes. That's the one thing he, he she's right you know, she she correctly mentioned. I, I we can look at it, look it up. Six of those items Biden didn't even mention in yeah. his speech. So he's a pretty far from I think
0: liberal from progressive fantasy land well i let to go back to susan glasser um on this yeah. whole issue of dissonance because I, I think that there there is genuine dissonance and she says you know it's uh, you know in, in, its early days yet but this is where biden's true genius as a politician may lie that he has turned his likability into a moderating asset suggesting that an ideological agenda when offered by a relatively non ideological salesman does not sound all that threatening. So that is the thing is they you look at him and you still think of him as non-threatening, as kind of moderate and centrist, and yet he is pushing this agenda. But then she says, look, in reality, you know, he's not going to get all this stuff done as you point out, you know, but is there anything at all wrong with another hour or two of political fantasy in Washington, particularly after the last four years? At least this time, it was not the Trumpian variant of grievance and division. Biden made no mention of culture wars or admire references to brutal dictators. He did not gaslight the nation about criminal illegal aliens or interrupt his speech to give one of the country's highest honors to a man famous for disparaging feminazis. On the eve of his 100th day in office, Joe Biden never publicly uttered the name Donald Trump, but being the un-Trump means Biden has already accomplished the first and most important promise of his presidency. So I, I, I think she's looking at this pretty much the way I was looking at this. Yeah. It like he's, It is so, I'm still in that. He's he's so the un-Trump. It is the contrast is so dramatic, you know, that I sort of take a deep breath about some of the the agenda items. But as you point out, um, more more liberal than progressive. Speaking of you mentioned the word woke several times, Uh, James Carville's getting up, making a lot of waves for an interview he did with Vox, telling Democrats not to use woke language. He actually said that to you first. Right. You had a conversation, one of your crystal conversations with uh james carville so he's he's really invested in trying to steer democrats away from using certain kinds of language isn't he yeah using certain
1: kinds of language and even kind of thinking in certain kinds of yeah. ways and 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 being too um, it, it, you know right so I, I no i think that's i mean he's colorful the way he describes yeah. it yes we were on this conversation and he said you know i the, the english faculty at amherst has too much power in the democratic party and that became a sort of a thing and um you know people replayed the clip and criticized him he doesn't they don't have much power they should have more power you know but i think he's look he's a real political operative he really looks at polling in a sophisticated way not not just in some sort of snapshot way He looks at races. He talks to a million politicians. And he sees the danger, as he put it in the the conversation. He saw in real time the damage that the defund the police stuff did to the Democrats, even though most of the members running in the House and so forth weren't for defunding the police, almost none of them was for really defunding the police. And Biden tried to slap it down and has a record actually as being very sympathetic to the police, probably more sympathetic to police unions than, than we would like. But, um, you know, once that got some ho- toehold that, that, that got, that took off and then some of the, you know, dividing everything by race and ethnicity and so forth, I mean, Carville, I think, is very interesting because he's a Southern liberal, always been very liberal on on civil rights and race, as, you know, Southerners, people <laughs> who grew up there at a certain period tend to be because they really saw it up close. And and, and I think that's one reason he was so attracted to Clinton. And, uh, and but he's very worried, but he very much and he's very close to a lot of Southern black politicians like Jim Clyburn and, uh, and in others in Louisiana and other states. And I think. Um, I think he very much hopes that the climber and form of progress on race will 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 take hold in the Democratic party, not the you know twenty five year olds and, and uh, you know who, who want to have endless discussions about how just being not not being racist and not being prejudiced and trying to h- look for policies to help everyone advance, including those, especially those who've been discriminated against, that that's not good enough. We have to beat our breasts and we have to go to 4,000 seminars on anti-racism and every, coll- every curriculum has to be featuring the 1619 Project. He sees that that's both, I think he just doesn't think it's right, first of all, and secondly, he sees the real political danger of that. And I very much agree with that. I mean, that really is The culture war stuff is, is, I mean, it's idiotic, a lot of what the Trump people do and ridiculous, but it's not, you know, it it works to some degree.
0: No, it it does work. Okay, so let's just uh, shift gears because uh, I'm actually far more interested. I was far more interested yesterday. In what happened to Rudy Giuliani? No, you need I to had. talk
1: about that because you've been on fire on
0: that. And so, uh, the- I, well, I, I do want to talk about Rudy. I mean, you know, and, and I wrote in my newsletter this morning. You know, I mean, really, when you think about it, Rudy was always, always at the center of everything. I mean, he was the one constant in the Trump circus, right? I mean, this impresario right. of, of corruption. I mean, he's at the center of everything. I mean, both of impeachments. You know, the efforts to subvert both Ukraine and the election. I mean, so he's there. He's like there everywhere. I mean, he's at the Four Seasons landscaping. He's there at the Insurrection. Uh, you know he's Trump's Roy Cohn, and you know it's sometimes he's a clown, sometimes he's a thug, sometimes he's a liar. But I mean, it really—you could write a history of the Trump years and the Trump impeachments by just focusing on Rudy Giuliani. And now it may be all coming apart for this guy because the federal investigators, the FBI, raided. It. I mean, they seized cell phones. They were they they seized computers from from Giuliani. I mean, this is this is a big deal. I mean, they're. They are stepping up this criminal criminal investigation into Giuliani's dealings in, in Ukraine. Uh, so, I mean, they executed a search warrant at 6 a.m. Uh, at his apartments and his offices, carting away all these devices and everything. I mean, that's, that's pretty extraordinary in, in any context, particularly for, you know, to take against a lawyer, let alone a lawyer for a former president. Uh, but especially in this particular case, this is, this is a very, very big deal. And the fall of Rudy Giuliani is just going to be one of the, I mean, I, I, I know the word is overused, but tragedies. When you think about what he once was and how he was regarded and what is likely to happen to him now. No, I, I
1: agree. And I, I agree very much about his kind of centrality beginning in around 2018, I guess, to, to, to what was happening. I mean two things just a, a note uh reading just you know sort of on twitter almost about it, reminding myself of what happened uh, of the ukraine story which we've oh, also yeah. forgotten so much happened yeah. since uh, trump was uh, acquitted by the senate and what was at the beginning of february of 2020. um the that was terrible and he deserved to be impeached and removed from office yeah. that. and the fact that the republicans all said well that was okay I mean, A, it emboldened him, and we had a terrible, various other than terrible things he did in 2020, obviously. But, but, um, I mean, the, the outrageousness of it and the total centrality of Giuliani to that, acting at Trump's behest and with Trump's knowledge, which raises the question what are they going to find about Trump? in these giuliani documents and and you know phone messages and so forth i mean i'm i don't know if they will it'll lead to an indictment of trump that's a little complicated he was president at the time where giuliani was a private citizen so you can really go after him quite justly for some of the things mm-hmm. he did, did but we will I, we might learn more of the kinds of things we learned a fair amount about in 2019 and again that all was a little complicated and there were a lot of you know this who knows about ukraine and russia and foreign names and foreign service officers who didn't like things You could make it look like well they were just the bureaucracy resisting trump but the degree to which i always come back to john Bolton, well known a long time who's very tough-minded conservative not some kind of you know state department hand-wringing oh we're not quite following the right procedures here type he worked very hard to become trump's national security advisor he wanted finally got fired but he wanted to stay there he believed in a lot of that foreign policy um i didn't agree with him on a lot of that some of it um but when he heard about ukraine He said, we've got to stay away from this drug deal. Remember that? And and he Mm -hmm. said it in the White House in real time, not a year later, you know, and he advised his subordinates, I think, not to go to certain meetings and also, if I recall correctly, to go see the counsel, the lawyer at the National Security Council to make sure they were kind of keeping uh, arm's length from this thing. If John Bolton says this is a drug deal, this is probably illegal and dangerous I mean, then it is, you know, and so I, I think for me, it was the, so the Ukraine stuff came back and then the, and also the way in which a lot of decent people fought against it, lost their jobs over it, whether they were ambassadors or career mm-hmm. officers or uh, Lieutenant Colonel Binman, you know, I mean, yeah, it's such a disgrace. And so I think the anything I can, your instinct, I think is right about this, uh, turning that rock over could be quite, remind us of a lot of things and reveal
0: some new things. Well, you, you you mentioned going back and reminding yourself of it. How much of it actually took place in real time, out in the open? I mean, this is the thing about a lot of the Trump scandals that that it happened in broad daylight. Uh, that Rudy Giuliani was saying, you know, I'm giving interviews saying that, yeah, yes, absolutely, um, he was pressuring the Ukraine to dig up dirt on on Joe Biden. They made no secret of the fact that they wanted to get rid of Marie Yovanovitch, who was the U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine. And, you know, and you go back and you read. The the transcript of that call between Trump and uh, the Ukrainian president, um, you know, that set off the the impeachment, and the way in which he very uh, the uh, Trump very explicitly uh, tells the the president Zelensky, um, I want you to meet with with Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani is my guy. Rudy Giuliani is really reliable. He knows what's going on here. I want you to meet with Giuliani and the Attorney General. So, I mean, the blast radius of this is going to be interesting because that whole story of how, you know, he worked with these guys like Lev Parnas and others to get rid of Marie Ivanovich that's going to be central to the case. The role of Bill Barr, I think, is going to be intriguing. How far did they go uh, to block the investigation into Rudy before the election and also after the election was the firing? of the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York related to this? Did they try to obstruct justice again? And I I, I, I think we are going to learn some new things about uh, about this particular case. But again, you know, I, I don't know what happened to some of these people. I We asked this question, were they always like this? Did something change? But, you know, Rudy, and I, I've said this like many times before on the podcast, but I keep coming back to this, you know, if Rudy Giuliani had died shortly after 2001 he would be a national legend there would be parks there would be schools named after him all over the country and he is going to be remembered as just this clownish corrupt liar um and 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 how how you go from from point a to point b is you know i i don't know whether you need historians or you need psychologists to to explain that Oh, I think that's right. I mean, one last point about it, uh, as you we were talking, it's just, of course, people kind
1: of know this, but then they forget it. What was the point of the Ukraine thing? I mean, for Rudy, it was to make a lot of money off, you know, getting foreigners to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars so they get access to, to, to the White House and to Trump. For Trump, it was to discredit Joe Biden and to get himself, make sure he had a good path to re-election. So, you know, it's not like your typical foreign policy policy. Uh, Crisis, as it were, or misbehavior by a president, where people do overreach and do things they shouldn't do, or their subordinates do. Iran Contra is a good example of this. Uh, but it was—they thought they were acting for the national interest. You shouldn't go beyond what right. Congress authorizes. You shouldn't, you know, obviously deceive Congress and so forth. But they—they—it wasn't you know to get reagan was in a second term it wasn't to get him reelected or anything like that or you know and so it was you know fighting the cold war and whatever and that would be true i think even of obama for you know he did things we don't approve of and think he shouldn't have done and i think there was some misleading of the country on some issues and around the iran deal and stuff but you know they thought it was the right thing for the country i mean this was entirely for trump's personal political interest and it really is worth remembering that and that's pretty that is I mean, it just, again, gets back to the incredible damage he did to all of our norms and, you know, and, and, and guardrails. Uh, and there, Biden has, I think, is, you know, just, just by, by not doing the damage and then by some affirmative actions to, to restore them also, I think he and Merrick Garland could do a lot of good for the country.
0: Oh, I think so. No, that's an interesting point about the through line with a lot of these scandals the ukraine and and the insurrection. it was all aimed at at keeping power. It was all aimed at protecting Donald Trump's presidency um get, getting him a second term. I mean that's what Ukraine was about right It was about right. how you smear your your leading opponent um the personal interest of, of of Donald Trump as well as as the as the insurrection and there's Rudy Giuliani who was prepared to do anything and say anything. I suppose the biggest tell is the fact that uh, we haven't heard much from Rudy uh, lately. Um, he claimed- I think, he one- Tucker. I think he's going to be on Tucker is Carlson he? tonight.
1: So you'll be wanting to set, well, your, set okay. your clock for that, you know? So. What
0: could go wrong? Yeah, right. I mean, I- honestly, well, and I-, I I see that the former guy issued a statement from, uh, from Mar-a-Lago uh, denouncing the-, the investigation. But, you know, one of the great realities that's changed, and you mentioned Joe Biden- the, these guys no longer can count on a pardon, and I wonder how much of their behavior really was based on the sense that hey, no matter what happens, no matter how you know things fall apart, um, you know I can always get the president to pardon me. I can always get a get out of jail free card because that was kind of a ubiquitous presence over the last four years. And you know, reading the Mueller report, um, which is worth actually rereading, to realize that. Donald Trump's obstruction of justice actually succeeded and and at the heart of that was his promises to certain people that hey you know if you keep your mouth shut you can get pardoned and you kind of wonder you know the Matt Gates of the world the Rudy Giuliani's of the world are now facing a stark new reality where they can't count on Donald Trump to bail them out and uh I, I that's that's, that's got to be a very a rude awakening. I mean, there was a reason why these guys fought so hard to to not acknowledge the reality of the election, right? I mean, right. this is this is this is a day they're out in the cold now, and that's and that is not irrelevant for for them.
1: It is interesting. Yeah, the, the feb- uh, Trump's failure to pardon Giuliani he hadn't been charged with anything, so would have looked different from the pardons of Roger Stone and Flynn and all that. I mean, but um, still, he could have done it, and the failure to to do that uh, in the, while he's a lame duck is pretty striking, I guess. And I wonder what, I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah but I, I don't Even know. I to... a
1: selfish guy, Trump, you know, he doesn't think that much about other people. And so, um,
0: no, he, he doesn't. Um, so I I don't know what what else should we talk about today I, I you know I, I've only really been resisting talking about the twenty twenty four field because I think that at a certain point we have to like live in the moment could we like live in the where we are at right now as opposed to constantly be looking ahead to another election so I've 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 steered away from that although you know obviously you have you know Mike Pence who's jockeying with with Christy Nome who's jockeying with Nikki Haley who's jockeying with Ron DeSantis. And, and all of them though completely beholden to um you know I mean frozen by by Donald Trump um who's likely who's
1: likely to run I do think, you think I so mean,
0: I guess uh, yeah
1: partly because God knows what legal trouble he'll be in and that being president could he thinks get him out of again and get other people out of so uh but it's a long way away so who, who knows I guess I remain so when we when we were uh, on the last podcast I was on, which I think a week ago, mm-hmm. um, we sort of both, in a contrarian way, said maybe there could be a little more bipartisanship than people think, a little more uh, coming up, you know, some compromises on the issues. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I mean, how much does the mood change if there really is a deal on police reform? And you could still get, you know, 30 Republican senators against it, but if you get 15 or 24, well, you could lose on the left, incidentally, if they go with some of Tim Scott's proposals and don't quite go as far as some of the, you know, really the activist groups who are curbing police officers, legal protection and so forth. I mean, it's not a huge, you know, it's it's mostly a state and local issue, obviously. And, and so it, the effect of whatever happens might be somewhat limited. Um, but I, I think that would be just very, I think Biden, he sort of emphasized that last night and made clear it was, uh imminent i think he will probably want to spend the next few days still emphasizing his economic agenda um but I, I wouldn't be surprised if you got the real white house involvement there and then a you know a deal and that would be sort of that would change the mood i mean if two weeks from now biden is there with uh some people from both parties maybe not mitch mcconnell maybe not kevin mccarthy but but tim scott and some other people from the house maybe liz cheney right and say you know what i think we've got a, a, some legislation here we can get a big majorities behind that would make things feel somewhat different, um, I think.
0: Oh, I think you're right. Okay. So, speaking of Liz Cheney, I talk, We talked about her on the podcast yesterday, but I, I continue to be. I mean, look, you've you've dealt with these Republicans um, up close and personal for for years and years and years, and you know how many squishes they are. She's still. Um, I, I I make no secret of the fact that I'm kind of fascinated by her. That she was a solid Trump loyalist, a solid conservative. Um, She voted against the impeachment uh, on Ukraine, but she has been absolutely unmovable since January 6th. And her willingness to continually push back is really quite something. And she represents a state that went for Donald Trump by more than 40 points. So Give me your take on Liz Cheney. What's going on
1: there? I mean, I've known her well over the years and worked with her quite closely at times. Then, you know, sort of drifted apart and I fell falling out. It's too dramatic, but drifted apart from 2016 to 2020, really, where she, as you say, went along. She was different from Trump and she didn't defend the worst aspects of Trump, but she went along basically and supported him for her election and reelection. Having said that, I would say that she was the, she is what, she is now doing what honorable Trump supporters should be doing, which is to say, we went along, we thought the policy trade-off was um, at the mar- on the margin worth it. We we felt we didn't have much choice. Uh, even supporting a free election, for me, that's a bit of a, uh, you know, that's a hard one to swallow, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, but once he lost, he had to give up power. Honestly, he had to acknowledge what happened in the election. He couldn't perpetrate a big lie. He couldn't incite a rebellion. And the party itself, the reason they all went along uh, an insurrection. But the, the, the reason they all went along was to get through these four years and then get the party back to a healthy state. I think that really was, other people said that's what they were thinking. She really did believe that. And so when Trump went against that in a very big way, and she saw others going along with Trump going against that 140 people or so in the House voting to overturn the election, I think she really was Uh, I mean, she believed what she was saying privately and even publicly in terms of why she was accommodating Trump as much as she was. And so once that stopped being... Operative in a sense, I mean, you know, she she did what she said she would do and s- stood up for democracy, stood up for the truth, stood up for a different future for the Republican Party. So she really was making a a calculation, one that I don't agree with, but still about how much you could tolerate the four years of Trump if you move beyond Trump. And what's most amazing is not Liz Cheney in a way; it's all the others who've decided, actually, you know, know. they all the talk about how we're going to get beyond Trump, when I, I wasn't that much into that, really, it's okay to have some, some Trumps, actually kind of okay to have a lot of Trumpism, you know, and if I can be on Fox, I'm not going to even criticize Trump, really, I'm going to say I'd support Trump in 2024. And I'm going to not, God forbid, ever criticize the worst things that any conservative or Republican says. And I'm not going to vote to take March Retail the Green off committee, you know, the whole thing, right? So yeah, I think she is the kind of most honorable version of a kind of accommodating to Trump that, as I say, I wasn't in favor of, obviously, but but I, I sort of think was, was motivated, had decent motivations. And she just can't believe, really, that n- the others were all lying. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So as 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 we're talking, we're getting some new um, uh, economic numbers in. And I think that, that in terms of the success or failure of the Biden administration, I think you know, we, you know, we started off by talking about the policies and the proposals and various other things. But obviously, uh, he is well positioned right now to have this major American comeback. Um, you get the sense of of optimism, uh, where wh- the you, you feel we're almost through the the, the pandemic, um, and the economy is coming back. So the numbers that came out this morning, the U.S. economy grew one point six percent in the first quarter, which is a six point four percent annual rate. So that would mean that we're on our way to returning to pre pandemic levels by summer. So this is interesting. I mean, the economy is shaking off some of the effects of the pandemic as spending grew, bolstered by the stimulus and an easing of restrictions. So if uh, if this pattern continues, uh Joe Biden is at least gonna have an economic uh honeymoon. But I would just, also just, say just despite so I like, all the divisions, yeah. Don't you think I think it will I think
1: you'll get Most, of much of the second package, the infrastructure package through, so so much of that is the kind of thing, you know, congressmen and senators of both parties can be for, Uh, you know, the the physical infrastructure and some of the rest, the the checks to families with children has got some bipartisan support and uh, some policy support. I think this will hurt his chances to then get the... Put it very roughly and broadly, like the final trillion or two of his six trillion. You know, I think at that point people start to say, "Hey, we got an economy. If we have an economy coming along at six, seven, eight percent, yeah, we can tinker with the tax code to make it child, you know, friendlier to families with children. We can maybe do a little bit to make sure uh, help states and localities provide more pre kindergarten education if if people want that. But you know, I, I suddenly the ambition of that kind of last tranche of of, uh, spending. And if some of the other kinds of spending too starts to look a little less, um, compelling and maybe we should spend some money on clean energy. I'm not against that, but maybe we don't have to spend quite as much as Biden thought. So I, I think at that point, you start to get back to a less transformational, more normal sort of politics with the democratic administration and democratic Congress. So leaning towards bigger government, but, but some of the oomph goes out of the, the urgency of it.
0: It could. I, I, I hope they don't. Um, I, I hope the UMPH doesn't go out of this this debate that we're having now or this discussion we're having now about the child tax credit, because that's an area where I do think that there's a potential for bipartisan cooperation. I and mean, the fact that Repub- conservatives have talked about this for some time, Mitt Romney's got a very interesting uh, proposal. It's not the same as the Biden administration's proposal. But if you could make that permanent, um, that would be one of the major legacies of this administration. And it would be great to see that as as, a pro-family, pro-life kind of policy that the Democrats would put into place with support from some Republicans. Yeah, I agree with that. Bill Crystal, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Appreciate it very, very much.
1: Thanks, Charlie. I hope I cheered you up a little. As you said before we got on, you
0: were a little cranky, and but I I feel like I feel
1: after these forty-two minutes, you're a little less.
0: You're you're a little more
1: more, more at peace with the world. You know.
0: I, I think so. But I had to get up really, really early this morning, so maybe that that you know <laughs> contributed to the, the crankiness. Hey, and thank everybody else for listening to The Bulwark Podcast. A quick reminder, Thursday night, we have The Bulwark Plus live stream. We'll be discussing this and a lot of other issues, including including Rudy and the re- election reform. So uh, if you are a member of Bulwark Plus, you can tune in tonight at 8 p.m. I think it's going to be a very um, – I think it's going to be a lit conversation. Um, We'll be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.